Well, we have been in a book, in the book of Galatians, and we're looking at Paul's argument about the gospel. And the overriding question that Paul's been taking up in this letter is this, what makes a human being righteous? What makes a human being justified before God? Now, I know this sounds like such an ancient question, but it's not simply an ancient Bible-sounding word, this idea of being righteous or justified. But in fact, it's an enduring human need. All of us have a need to feel justified. All of us have a need to feel like we're accepted, that we're worthy in the court of appeals that matters most. And it reminds me, there, uh, I'll never forget, I read um, a quote by Carl Rogers, who was a famous uh, philosopher in the 20th, 21st century, and uh, he, was, uh, he, he invented client-centered therapy. And uh, he made this statement about human beings that I think is pretty profound. He said, uh, after his years of counseling, this is what he said. He said, the central core difficulty in people as I have come to know them is that in the great majority of cases, they despise themselves and regard themselves as worthless and unlovable. In other words, most people think I'm worthless, I'm unlovable, I'm not right, there's something deeply wrong. And what Christianity offers us is an answer to this, this felt need that, that you are worthy, that you, have, that you have been justified, that you are right before the, the, the person that matters most. But then the question Paul is, is getting at here is how is a person justified? You know, we all want this confidence to know that we're acceptable. Where does it come from? And Paul says there are two ways that, that people typically try to get it. One is by works of the law. You try to earn acceptance. You try to tell, you try to tell yourself you're worthy by what you achieve, by what you do, by what Paul says, keeping the law. Or, he says, you can receive the free gift of justification by faith alone. You see, one is earning God's love, and the other way is receiving God's love with a gift, as a gift. And what Paul is saying is that the, what, what Christianity says is something different than every other religion. It's that we receive our justification as a gift, apart from works of the law. You don't earn salvation. You don't earn your way into justification. It is given freely, free of charge, apart from works of the law, apart from earning. And so uh, a little review, that's what Paul's been saying. But as we get to this long, windy section, uh, and I admit it is a very complex section, uh, Paul is, he's going to anticipate an objection to what he's been saying, to this, what I just said. And, uh, you know, you got to think about Paul here as an expert trial lawyer, right? He's been building a case for us. He's been arguing his case that we're justified freely by grace apart from the law. And now what he's going to do is he's going to anticipate an objection to what he's been saying. What is the objection? Well, to put it simply, uh, what he's going to anticipate is, is the objection that, well, what about the law? You're saying that the law doesn't matter in terms of my being right before God? What about the law? Doesn't the law matter? Doesn't keeping the rules matter? And you've got to remember, Paul is writing as a Jew to, uh, to combat Jewish teachers, and think about a Jew. For a Jew, I mean, for all of their lives, uh, their whole religious uh, observance has been about the law, right? You know, think about the Old Testament, 613 rules, laws in the Old Testament. Think about the book of Leviticus, a whole book dedicated uh, to, to the law. Uh, think about all the different types of law in the Old Testament. There's the Decalogue or the Moral Law, the Ten Commandments. 
And then there's case law, which is the extrapolation on the Ten Commandments. What, how do I apply the Ten Commandments in this situation, in that situation? Loads of, of verses given to that idea. And then there's the ritual law. Right? There's washing your hands and the kosher food laws and all this other stuff. And there's the sacrificial law. And for a Jewish person, their whole life revolved around keeping the law. And here Paul comes along and says, the law doesn't matter. The law is not an ingredient in your justification. And so any Jew would be saying, well, wait a minute here. I've been doing this all my life, and you're saying the law doesn't matter? I've revolved my whole, you know, everyday existence around keeping the law, and you say it doesn't matter? Paul's going to answer this objection, but it's not just a Jewish objection. I think that uh, a lot of people are confused about the law. You know, they hear this message of grace and say, well, doesn't law matter? Doesn't keeping the rules matter? You know, even non-Christians, they might look at the Christian religion and say, well, I mean, aren't rules important to religion? Aren't rules important to being justified before God? You know, when I was younger, I did, a, um, I was a, I did evangelism as a, uh, as a minister who was an intern. Went to a church, and they made me go out on the streets of Dallas and street evangelize, tell people about Jesus, and, uh, which is scary for an introvert, which um, I am most of the time. And so uh, I went out on the streets. They had us lead out with this one question. I think it's actually a pretty good question. They told us to ask people, if you were to die tonight, and you were to stand before God, and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? And I can tell you that in the great majority of cases, most people said, I would respond, I've tried hard to be a good person. That's what I would tell God. Uh, you know, we, mistakes were made. We all make mistakes. Of course, everybody makes mistakes. But here's why God should accept me. This is why I should be justified before God. I've tried hard to be a good person. What is that? That is the law. That is this idea that, you know, keeping laws is an ingredient in my accept acceptance before the law court of God. And someone says, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, really, I can just, you know, salvation is free. What's wrong? What about the law? And this is the objection. And so as we go through it, Paul's going to give us the answer to that. Number one, well, he's going to give us three, he's going to say three things about the law. Number one, he's going to talk about the problem of the law. And then he's going to talk about the purpose of the law. And then finally, the person of the law. What about the law? Doesn't the law matter? Paul's going to say, well, first, you've got to understand the problem of the law, the purpose of the law, why it was given in the first place, and finally, the person of the law. And uh, we'll go through this passage under these big uh, headings. And so uh, Paul says, you who want to be justified by being a good person, you who think the law is important for uh, earning salvation, he says, first you've got to understand the problem of the law, and this is in verse 10. For all who rely <coughs> excuse me, on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. For the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that they might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so what is the problem of the law? Paul says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Here's the problem with the law. The law brings a curse. 
Now, what is Paul saying here? Now, notice Paul is not saying that the law itself is bad or the law itself is a curse. The law actually, the law itself, God's moral law, is a good thing. You know, if, gosh, read the Old Testament and read the Psalms. It talks about blessed is the man who walks in the law of the Lord. He's like a, a, a tree planted by the rivers of water. Thank you for that water. <laughs> it came in perfect. Look at that. It even fit with the sermon. Water. Oh, yeah, tree planted by the water. That's what the law of the, of the Lord is like, says the Old Testament. It, it, it's a blessing. And uh, last uh, summer, we did a sermon series on the Ten Commandments, the law. And what we said is that the law is God's version of the good life. He says you want to live the good life, life as it was meant to be. Keep the law. The law is a blessing. The law is good. I mean, read the Old Testament. It's all over the place. And so Paul isn't saying that the law or morality in, in and of itself is bad. Keep the law. Try hard to be a good person, especially if you're my neighbor. <laughs> so what's wrong with the law? Notice what Paul says here. He says, for all who rely, the word rely there is important, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. It's not with the law per se, but with relying on the works of the law. In other words, Paul's saying, look, if, if you're looking to the law to, to justify you before God, then the law becomes a curse. Or in other words, if you're using law as a salvation strategy, the law is going to bring a curse. You see, the law is great for, you know, for many things, but not as a way to get into heaven or to get acceptance with God. If you're doing that, the law will bring a curse, and that's exactly what Paul says here. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. In other words, he's saying, okay, you want to use the law as a way to be saved, as a salvation strategy? Well, understand this. The blessing of the law comes by those who do the law. The one who wants to be saved by the law must understand that they've got to do it. And the, there, therein lies the problem. Nobody keeps the law perfectly. The law is not doable. Uh, if, if, you st- if, you, if, if the law is your measurement, you say, look, I'm going to try to measure up so that I can earn acceptance with God. Paul says, don't do that. That's going to lead to curse, not blessing, because nobody keeps that law perfectly, and it's going to end up condemning you. On Friday, I went to Pinnacle Mountain. Anybody been there? Awesome uh, hike. And uh, we went to the, uh, I think it was the west side, the west peak is what they called it. And uh, that, that peak goes up uh, 800 feet and three quarters of a mile. And so it was incredibly difficult, and it was really, really difficult with four children, right, running off the side of the mountain and grabbing them here, you know. And, uh, but we, 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 we attempted the climb, and we did it, and we got all the way up to the pinnacle. And it was a beautiful view. We, we took a picture, put it on Facebook. I mean, what else would you do in that, that, that situation? But somebody later on was asking me about it, and they said, well, how was it? I mean, tell, is, it, is it doable? I mean, could you actually do it? And I said, listen, it was incredibly hard, but it was doable. This is not the law of God. The law of God is not something that's strenuous, but doable. The law of God is impossible. As a standard, it is an impossible measurement. And so Paul says, it brings a curse. Do not attempt to gain your righteousness that way because you will fail. It's inevitable. 
because all of us fall short of God's perfect standard. And this is what Jesus was trying to teach the rich young ruler, if you remember that story. Remember the rich young ruler who said, look, I want to get acceptance with God. Just tell me what to do. And Jesus says, well, have you kept the law? And what did the rich young ruler say? Oh, yeah, I kept every single one of them since I was a child. And Jesus says, really? Sell all you have and get it to the poor. You heard the one, do not covet? He dropped his head and he went away sad. Why? Because he realized, I just don't measure up to that standard. And if that's what it takes, well, there's no way I'm getting in. And Paul says, that's right, and that's not the way at all. You never use the law as a salvation strategy. It was never meant to do that. Gaining acceptance for God never comes by by keeping the law. Keeping the law only brings a curse, and so he goes on. Jesus, in verse 13, or Christ, redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is why Jesus had to die, because we can't keep the law. If we could save ourselves, which is what keeping the law is, it's my attempt to save myself. I'm going to do what it takes to reach my way up to heaven. If that's the way that we get acceptance, Jesus would never would have had to die. You see, it's an impossible standard, which is why Jesus had to come and save us, because we couldn't save ourselves. That's what Paul is saying here. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on on a tree. Jesus took the curse for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, Paul's going to go on here and says, and so he presents the problem of the law. You can't, that's, that's going to bring a curse. Don't even try to use that as a way for salvation. And a Jew might say, well, wait a minute here. If the law is not the way to be saved, then what about those poor people in the Old Testament? I mean, for millennia, we've been keeping this law. Are you saying that God's people were saved by law in the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament, then we get grace? And if that's the case, did God change his mind? Right, if the law was good enough for Abraham and Moses, and if, 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 they're the, if they worked their way to heaven through the law, then did God change his mind and say, oh, now in the New Testament, then it's grace? Paul says, no, 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 listen. The law has always been a curse, and nobody ever has been saved by the law. It's always been grace. Look at verse 15. He says, to give a human example, brother, brothers, a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it does not say into his offsprings, referring to, to many, but not referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ, and this is what I mean. Listen, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, even in the Old Testament, even way back with Moses and Abraham and all those Old Testament people. Nobody's ever been saved by the law. And he says, I'll prove it to you. He said, think about Abraham. How was Abraham saved? Was Abraham saved by keeping the law? And he says, no, God gave Abraham a promise, an unconditional promise. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your children completely by promise. It's all free gift, no strings attached. It's there for Abraham, completely faith alone by grace. And he said, he says, Abraham didn't even have the law. The law came 430 years after Abraham. He couldn't have used the law to justify himself. And so he says, salvation has always been by grace. Abraham was saved by grace. 
and Moses was saved by grace, and everybody in the Old Testament was saved by grace. The law has never been a salvation strategy. It's kind of like uh, the other, uh, yesterday I was, um, one of my kids said, uh, Dad, can we go to Miss Faith's pool? Miss Faith is out there. She's got a pool. She lives around our block. Daddy, can we go to Miss Faith's pool? And I said, yes, we can. This was in the morning before it got cloudy. And uh, I said, yes. And they said, well, do you promise? And I said, sure, I promise. I shouldn't have said that. Later on in the day, the kids started to get really wild and stuff. And I said, if you want to go to Miss Faith's pool, you got to be good kids. And one of my very astute children said, Dad, first you said it was a promise, and now you're saying we've got to earn Miss Faith's pool. No backsies, Dad, no backsies, is what he said. You can't go back on that promise. And this is what Paul is saying here. God gave salvation to Abraham as a gift. It was free, it was there, it was a promise. And later on, God gave the law, but the law does not annul the promise. God didn't change his mind when he gave the law. The law was never meant to bless you or save you or justify you, ever. Old Testament or New Testament. People have always been saved by grace, never by law. The book of the Bible, the Bible has always been a story about God's grace from beginning to end. Salvation, blessing, God's righteousness has always been free. And so then the question arises, well, why did God give the law? And that's what Paul's going to answer in the second point. He, think, remember, he's an expert trial lawyer, and he's saying, look, salvation has always been grace. God's never used the law to justify anybody. And so a good Jew is saying, well, why did God give the law in the first place? If it was never meant to save us, if it was never meant to bring us acceptance for God, why did God give the law? I mean, why Moses? Why not skip from Abraham to Jesus? What is Moses doing in there? And here uh, he's going to answer the objection in verse 19. So why then the law, he says? And here's his answer. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary uh, implies more than one, but God is one. Nobody understands that verse. I read like eight commentaries. Nobody gets it. I'm going to move on. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would have been, would indeed be, would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith could be revealed. And so in these verses, Paul is saying, well, why did God give the law then? If the law isn't meant to save us, then what is the purpose of the law? And here's what Paul's going to say. He says the purpose of the law, the purpose of the law, God never gave the law to tell us about salvation. Why did God give the law? God gave the law to tell us about sin. You see, none of us understands our sin deeply enough. None of us really understand how deeply in trouble we actually are. And so in order to reveal to us, to take the lid off of our lives and to expose us to ourselves, God gave the law. The way Paul puts it is the law was given, it was added because of transgressions. That's why God gave the law. It was to show us that we, that to imprison us, he says, under sin. 
to show us how deeply in bondage we are. The main purpose of the law is to show us our problem, that we are lawbreakers, and to prove that we are not the solution. You see, the law, it shows us that we're prisoners. You know, we think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. I try hard to be a good person. Oh, I make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. And God said, oh, it's much deeper than that. You're in prison. You're a captive. You're a slave. And it's not that the law is bad. The law is perfect and righteous. You're the one who's bad. And you just try to keep that law, and you're going to find over and over and over again, I'm chronically disobedient. I am a transgressor. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Um, he puts it this way. Where does he put it? He says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. The law was given to take the lid off your life to expose you to you and to show you that you are deeply, not just a little bit, but deeply, deeply broken, imprisoned to your own worst self. John Stott puts it this way. After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off of man's respectability and disclose what he really is underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. You know, one of the great faults of our culture is our tendency to soft pedal sin and judgment. You know, to say, look, you're okay. We're all okay. We're all just fine. I am beautiful no matter what they say. I am beautiful in every single way. Words can't bring me down, right? That's Christina Aguilera about 10 years ago. <laughs> We're all okay. We're all fine. And the law says, no, you're not. Oh, no, you're not. This is the problem. You're the problem. Do you understand how deeply flawed you are? And the law is given to show us our deep, deep need. And there is no hope. There is no redemption until you acknowledge and recognize your own deep brokenness and need. Until you realize you're a prisoner, you'll never be set free. Until you realize you're drowning and you need to be rescued, you'll never grab the rope. You'll say, oh, I'm fine, a rope, oh, that's nice. No, until you realize how deeply broken you are, you're not gonna see the beauty of the salvation you've been given. Uh, J.S. Bach, who's a composer, uh, if, you, if you listen to his music, and I listen to his music only because we're doing homeschool and we listen to Bach sometimes for our kids. And one thing that you, you learn about his music is there, there are deeply discordant sections that are, that are uh, you know, aggressive and they're up and down and they're, you know, they're kind of filled with angst and, and turmoil. And then right after it, there's a section where you dance. I'm not gonna dance. But his, his, his song, Joy, you know, da na 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 I mean, it's so joyful, it comes right after a section of deep angst and, and just harsh-sounding music. Bach understood grace. He, he played music for the church. 
And so he was trying to show us that the beauty of grace only comes, the dance only comes after you realize how deeply broken and flawed you are. Has the lid been taken off of your life? Are you still thinking, oh, I'm, I'm a good person, I'm okay, everybody makes mistakes, but I'm trying real hard. Or do you realize how deeply flawed you are? Uh, Andrew Delbanco, is a, he's a, a teacher in humanities at the University of Columbia, Columbia University. And he wrote a book on uh, the, the Alcoholics Anonymous movement. And in order to do research for the book, he traveled around the country going to AA meetings, if you can imagine that. And he said he went to, to one AA meeting in, on Saturday night in New York City. And he said when he got there, some man was uh, talking. He said he was crisply dressed, and he was talking about his alcohol addiction. And he said it was clear to me that this man didn't think he had any problems. He started talking about how he was wronged here and, so, and it, there was injustice there and it was, really wasn't his fault at all and he said, I really have to pull myself together and, and I can do it. And then he said, in the meeting, this, this African-American man was sitting next to him, this man with dreadlocks and dark shades. And he leaned over to Andrew Del Banco and said, I used to feel that way until I achieved low self-esteem. Now, what was the, the man saying? He wasn't saying, look, we all need to hate ourselves and, yeah, we really need to have a poor self-image. He was saying, I used to feel that way until I realized the depth of my problem. And Del Banco says this in his book, this was more than a good line. For me, it was a moment I understood in a new way the religion I had cl cl claimed to know something about. As the speaker bombarded us with phrases like, gotta take control of my life and I've got to really believe in myself, the man beside me took refuge in the old Christian doctrine that pride is the enemy of hope. What he meant by this joke about self-esteem was that he learned no one can save himself by dint of his own efforts. He thought the speaker was still lost, lost in himself, but without knowing it. And the law helps us to know that we're lost. And this is why we need it. We need, we need it almost like a mirror to show us how deeply helpless we are to show us that we're not just imperfect, but we're rebels and we need to lay down our arms. You know, the, the, the path to feeling justified and to feeling acceptable and feeling righteous is first to go through an understanding that you're not and that you're broken. And then you begin to reach out for help, which is the final point, which is the person of the law. Notice he goes on here in... The, in um, Verse 23, and he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under, under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So he talks about the law as a guardian then. The law is a babysitter. The law serves a purpose, but ultimately, what's the purpose of the babysitter? You hand the kids off, and even though you'd really like to leave them there forever, maybe, I don't know, Ultimately, the babysitter is supposed to introduce you to your parents again. And the law is supposed to introduce you to Jesus. The law is the schoolmaster or the guardian that drives us to Christ. The law is the one that shows us that we deeply need a Savior and helps us learn to really love and appreciate him. Because it's through the law, remember at the very beginning, it's through the law that we learn that, oh, we're cursed. But who took the curse? Jesus Christ took the curse for us. He who knew no sin became our sin so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. 
The law is the one, he's the promise. He's the promise that we've all been waiting for. The law drives us to Jesus, who is our promise. You see, the law helps us to get an appreciation and a love for and a gratitude for Jesus Christ. And so what Paul says is, he says, you need to understand what the purpose is. The law was never given to save you. The law was never given simply to manage your sin. The law was always given to expose your need and to drive you to Jesus. And the law is still doing that for all of us who are Christians. The other day I was driving to work, and I was driving to work, and I was, uh, I was praying that God would bless me. Oh, God, I pray that you'd bless me. And I needed God's blessing. I needed him to, to show up at work, and I needed him to, you know, bless our church, you know. God, bless me. And then I started thinking about all the reasons why I didn't deserve his blessing. I wasn't good enough for it. And so I started to sink down in despair. I don't deserve, why am I even praying this? I don't deserve God to bless me. But then I remembered once again that my blessing isn't dependent upon my works, but on the work of Jesus. And then I got a fresh appreciation for my Savior. That he became a curse for me so that I could receive the blessing. That he took my punishment, what I deserve, so that I might get what I don't deserve. And I got to work and got out of my car and I had a fresh appreciation and worship for Jesus Christ. And this is what the law should do. You remember that, that old uh, story in the Gospels where a prostitute goes into the, the home of the Pharisee, right? The Pharisees brought Jesus over as their colleague, you know, there's Jesus, we're gonna talk to him about theological issues. And then bang, into the room, the, the doors swing open and the woman from the streets, which, which literally means she's a prostitute, she runs in, she falls at the feet of Jesus, and she begins to wipe his feet with her tears. And of course, all the religious folks were aghast. Who, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus says, what does he say? He says, when I came into this room, you didn't so much as, as take off my shoes. You looked at me as a colleague. But this woman, this woman needs me. And he says, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. The ones who really appreciate Jesus are the ones who know how desperately they need him, and that's what the law does for us. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Jesus Christ gives you what, what the law can't. And those who come to Jesus based, based upon his grace and what he has done, Paul says they're the ones who, who are justified and that's the way it's always been. From the beginning of the Bible to the end. It's all of grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage and it's, it's really long and it's, it's complex but hopefully uh, we've gotten at least the gist of it this morning, God, that the law, although it is good, although it, it, it's it does uh, bring blessing in, in the life that it prescribes. All of us fall short of your law. And Father, I pray, God, uh, even those this morning who maybe have come into this room feeling condemned, feeling uh, acutely aware of, of the various ways that they have broken your law and sinned against you, 
Lord, I pray that the offer of the gospel would be abundantly clear. God, that we could receive your justification, that we could be worthy, that we could be right, that we could have the confidence to stand before you because of what you have done. Lord, that our, that our sin would lead us to the cross. And we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.